This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Jennifer Weisenfeld, Dean of the Humanities and Professor in the Department of Art, Art History, and Visual Studies at Duke University. Dr. Weisenfeld is the author most recently of Imaging Disaster, Tokyo and the Visual Culture of Japan's Great Earthquake of 1923, published by the University of California Press in 2012. Dr. Weisenfeld, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's great to be here. On the podcast, I've talked with other art historians really about how developments during the Meiji period impact Japanese art and constructions of this term, modern Japanese art. But I'm curious in what ways the Meiji period sets the stage for later developments in Japanese art and really how later artists react to some of these modern institutions, be they artistic, political, or even this very idea of modernity itself. You've written about this in Mavo. And so I was wondering if you could unpack that for us a bit. Sure. Exactly as you said, I don't think there would have been a Mavo without the institutional building and the creation of academies and the conceptual restructuring of art that happened with the Meiji Restoration and then, of course, the nation-building project in general. You can't overstate how much the national project produced and reordered, re-taxonomized artistic production. And I know one of the things that people always ask about the Meiji period is, is it a rupture or is is it continuity? And I think it's both. Um, There are certainly moments of rupture. And with the creation of these new kinds of academies, new patrimony, new ways in which patronage and cultural entities are organized and exhibited, that really changes the nature of the way art is perceived. But people continue to produce art in many of the same ways. It's the structuring and the perception of it that changes. And what you find in the Taisho period after the the short period, the short and dynamic period that comes right after Meiji is that you get this whole generation of artists who've grown up in this structuring and reordering and taxonomizing and reprioritizing of art under the state. And they say, no, art is about expression. It is about the individual. It is not about the nation. And so their whole ideology and their whole sense of art in daily life is structured in relation to what the state has tried to do and what cultural ideologues have tried to do to make art central to the nation building process. So you can't have an avant-garde without an art establishment. So I think that's kind of the takeaway for me about Mavo is that it's a dialectic and you can't really have one without the other. Now, we've used this term Mavo several times now. Mm -hmm. For the listeners who aren't aware of what the Mavo movement was, can you describe what what it was and trace the contours of it a bit for us? Mavo was actually the name of a group. Uh, There are a lot of apocryphal, slightly mythical tellings of how the name generated, whether it was a kind of Dadaistic cutting up of the individual alphabetical, Western alphabet names of various of the various participants, and then they were kind of thrown up and made a word or whether they were chosen or how it all developed. Um, some of it's a little too neat, and one wonders where the V came from. So, uh, But uh, some people said it was from Varvara Bubanova, who was a Russian participant who was known to these group, this group of artists. But, but basically, it was a I like to say kind of a ragtag group of, of Japanese, young Japanese artists, very young, led by a very iconoclastic, charismatic 
figure named Murayama Tomoyoshi. And Murayama had the opportunity to study in Berlin in a critical time period in the early 20s. And when he came back, he galvanized a group of artists who were working in some ways on the periphery of these academies and other types of organizations and exhibitions that were set up during this process of the art establishment getting set up in the Meiji period. And they, they rallied together, but they, I think they clashed as much as they coalesced. And they are, in many ways, the quintessential avant-garde because they worked in so many different types of media and idioms. And I, when you think about artists, you don't want to just think about people who are making painting or sculpture, but these artists were performing, they were writing poetry, they had a magazine that they issued. It was very short-lived, but very intense. It kind of burned bright and then burned out. And of course, their work spanned the Great Kanto Earthquake, which is what got me so interested in them in, in the first place about how their work was both responding to the chaos of this massive destruction of the capital of Tokyo and surrounding areas, but also uh, seeing opportunity in the wake of that destruction. Much of that, I don't know if euphoria is the right word, but the the kind of optimism about the possibility after destruction was because so many of the things that had been created in the Meiji period were now rent asunder and were there in ruins and the possibility of rebuilding. But of course, those structures were more than just the buildings that were destroyed. They were they were already deeply entrenched in culture. So I don't know if that's if that kind of gives you a general sense of who they were. They were at the start five people, but at any one time there were 10, 15 artists who were participating, they had exhibitions, they had these, what you would think of as now kind of pop-up exhibitions, uh, very ahead of their time happenings. They got a lot of publicity in the newspapers at the time because they were doing kind of radical and rebellious things. Uh, they had a kind of a salon de refusé, which is what you had in Paris after, with all of the art that was, was actually rejected from the main Paris Salon, and they did it too, but they did it on park benches in Ueno. So really interesting approaches to how to be active and engaged in art in the modern period in the 1920s in response to, and also in a sense, trying to undermine those kinds of art establishment practices. And you mentioned that the Great Kanto Earthquake is this kind of moment of tearing asunder of the city. And and yes. one of the narratives that we get often of the Kanto Earthquake is that you know it hits right in the center of Tokyo, the center of all this Meiji modernization, and really destroys many of those emblems of modernization. It's The Ginza Brick Town is completely destroyed by the earthquake. Many of these other great artifacts of the Meiji period are all destroyed. And so people see this as maybe a sign from the gods that this modernization went too far. Is there some overlap here with the avant-garde movement is criticizing modernity? They see this as a new call or what are some of the responses to the Great Kanto Earthquake? And of course, you've written about this in your book, Imaging Disaster. Yes, uh, I think exactly as you said, particularly you mentioned Ginza, but also one of the actually the tallest buildings in the world at the time, I think the second tallest building in the world at the time was the Roonkaku, which was known commonly as the 12 stories, which was in Asakusa. Uh, it was the, the skyscraper of the age and it, it cracked in half and fell over in the, in the earthquake. And that's one of the consummate iconic examples of the risks of modernity, of the aspirations to build taller, but the greater the technology, the more the destruction. And so there is a lot of rhetoric 
anti-modernity rhetoric and also fear about what that said about Japan's national progress. The whole Meiji project of civilization and enlightenment is kind of questioned there. But that's, that's generally overtaken by a desire to rebuild a very positivistic notion of, um, and, and even a kind of cyclical notion of rebuilding the city. People are squatting on their property pretty quickly. And the avant-garde itself, as I mentioned before, I, and maybe the euphoria is the right word, and that, that they actually see this as an opportunity, as many people do, that destruction is an opportunity to rebuild and rethink. And in a sense, levels everyone, or at least that was part of the rhetoric of class, that everyone is equal in the face of disaster. And it did create all kinds of, of new possibilities, both for artists, but also for the capital. So it's, it's a kind of mixture there and the, the, the push and pull of destruction and apocalypse and rebirth and renewal and divine retribution and the idea that, well, nature is actually not divinely ordained, but this is just, this is just part and parcel of the natural world because that was part of the scientific rhetoric of progress. So you have all of these really interesting, this heady mixture of all of these different things. And I don't think you can say that Japan had one reaction to the earthquake. That's part of the argument of my book is that it, it, it's really in conversation and there are any number of facets uh, and ways in which people interpret it. One of the projects that I've just completed or is, is actually ongoing, I've been developing it with one of my graduate students, is an archive of postcards of the Great Kanto earthquake. And I, I got very interested in the medium of postcards, both as a collectible, as a means of communication, it's, and as a source of soft news. It, it really was. And it's really interesting to think, again, back to the connections in the Meiji period, the great media event in which photography and postcards kind of coalesce around uh, disseminating information at the same time, is the Russo-Japanese War. And so the Russo-Japanese War is the great media event of its time period. And that continues forward the using of photography in postcards. So I've created this archive of a collection that we have here in the Rubenstein Special Collections at Duke. And it's just a sampling. There are just thousands and thousands of postcards. Some are black and white. Some are machine-tinted. Fewer hand-tinted, but by and large, they're, at that point, you have machine color tinting. They're absolutely fascinating, and many of them were taken by photographers from major news organizations. So you've got this great photojournalistic eye, and then the images circulate. So I talk a lot about photography and reiterations of photographs and how that I talk about this visual lexicon of disaster, how that's codified over time in different media. But photography, of course, because of its truth value or its myth of, of truth, is such a powerful touchstone for documenting the disaster. But as we see, and I, I teach with this archive with my students, I just actually just did a workshop with some incoming freshmen who are taking a, an orientation in what research in the humanities is. And, and what they were so amazed is to find that even as freshmen who are just stepping onto campus, they can go into this archive of images and start to see the way the images are creating a narrative of this event, whether they're creating an image of um, catastrophic 
ruins and that image of the 12 stories that we talked about, that, that monumental skyscraper that cracked and becomes the, the shock of the modern, the shock of disaster, this discourse about the possibility of progress being stopped. And they could see that in these in these images here, the repetition of this building as a kind of tragic carcass standing in, in the wake of ruins. But they also saw incredible images of refugees, of, of resilience, of, of national solidarity, of altruism, refugees getting food. So there's also images of in ways in which these images tell a story of rebuilding. And I was amazed. These are students who have absolutely no background in Japan or even in visual studies. And one student pulled up an image that had the imperial palace in the background. And it was a basically a bread line, a, a rice line for people to get food. And in the background is this looming image of the imperial palace as a kind of symbol of benevolence and a symbol also of continuity. Because of course, one of the great fears in all disasters is not only that the government is destroyed, but that there will be chaos and what had happened to the emperor. And so images of the imperial palace are, are so powerful. And we see that repeated in other types of media as well. I, I look a lot at woodblock prints. Wood, this is really the last gasp, I think, of woodblock prints serving in a really public information dissemination form because they really become much more, more limited distribution afterwards, not like they were in the in the Sino and Russo-Japanese wars, but they, there are quite a lot of commemorative woodblock prints that are produced during this time period. I also, of course, do look at film. There were lots of film clips and people using those films to re raise money afterwards. But there, you know, there's also a whole genre of postcards that are produced that are just of burnt and dead bodies or bodies in, in rivers and waterways. And so there's a a kind of voyeuristic gaze that that these images also invoke. There's there's both a tragic and kind of national sorrow that's evoked, but also a, a little bit of a, a voyeuristic curiosity and a fascination with with death and death and destruction as well. And this goes right into your next project, I understand. If we think about one moment of destruction in Tokyo's history being 1923, another one comes in 1945 with the air raids. And now you're working on the visual culture of the air raids? That's right. I have a new book called Protect the Skies. That's the title of a national mobilization campaign, Mamore Ozora, that starts in 1933. And this whole concept of boku, of protecting the skies, and that whole movement of civil air defense comes right on the heels of the earthquake. It really starts in 1928, which is well before any of the other countries that we think of as, because of course, civil air defense is a global development. But this is because Japan has the experience of, of its capital being raised. It is very concerned about that. Uh, the destruction, of course, the wood, the nature of the city, that, it be, it, that it's so heavily made of wood, and the prospect of incendiary bombs, not to mention poison gas bombs as well, just becomes a priority issue already by, by the mid to late 20s. And you're already seeing civil air defense drills. So it's a perfect dovetailing of those two cultural moments. And I'm, I'm looking at that because I'm seeing how it's a launch pad to this next phase from, from the 30s on to 1945. 
so some listeners might be thinking, wow, this, these projects seem so disparate. And I mean, but there does seem to be this common theme of the way visual culture is being mobilized by the state in mm-hmm. some sense. Is that what you would say is one of the themes or what are what are the other themes that you that you find common? Yes, I, I know I have a bit of a, a meandering curiosity, but there, I think there is a logic or, or there's there is some kind of a, method to my madness. Um, I, I'm very organic, I think, in the way I move through periods. But but um, I think you put your finger on something that is really important to me, which is that we not think about the visual art or visual culture more generally as simply reflective or mirroring of what's happening, but it, that it actually is constructing culture. It is actually taking part in and participating as an active agent and producing the way people see the world. And I think that's true for the Meiji period, that the it wasn't a foregone conclusion how people would understand the nation and how they would understand the state itself. And that had to be visualized. It had to be consumed. It had to be embodied. It had to be spatialized. And all of those things required artistic and creative interventions. And those produce the culture of a nation. Uh, and it's not simply the imagined community of gathering people. It's actually what is statecraft? What does a postal system look like? How do you build how do you build railroad stations that create a system to connect the geospatial aspects of the nation? Where are borders, cartography? Um, and that's something I just think carries all the way through all of my work is that I think that images have power and objects have power. They mediate our perception of the world around us. And they produce certain kinds of, whether it's emotions or actions uh, I saw that very clearly with the imagery of the Great Kanto earthquake. It wasn't simply documenting this horrendous national tragedy. It was actually producing the way people saw it in retrospect and how they approached rebuilding and how they approached it. And then it changed over time. It's not static. So to me, that's really the core of what I'm, I'm looking at is how how art and the visual are active actively engaged in producing the world. And I understand you're also teaching a class on a similar topic of how does how is art and visual culture wrapped up in the foundation of the nation state and the nation and the construction of national identity. So can you walk us through that course a bit or walk us through that syllabus and talk about how you're constructing this class and what are some of the lessons and what are some of the materials you're using? Mm-hmm. Yes, this class imaging a nation is uh, visual culture 1868 to 1945 is one of the kind of bread and butter courses that I developed when I got to Duke and I've been teaching it on a pretty regular rotation. Of course, what's amazing is in the last 10 to 15 years, how much new scholarship has come out in this area. And it's so stimulating. I, I'm always wanting to jam more things into this class than I can possibly find because when I started the class, I was often trying to bridge historical texts and put in the visual and because there were no really good texts. And it was the class I always wished I could take in graduate school or at an, as an upper level undergraduate. I, it's kind of, a, it's usually taught at the either senior seminar or uh, under uh, graduate level. And uh, it was the class I wanted, I wanted to take. And, and then as I've developed it, I think the scholarship has come and filled it in in such a beautiful way. But it really starts out with that idea. I, I ask my students when they come in, 
What are the new cultural concepts, images, and objects that come to mind when you think about creating a nation? If you think about nation building as a project, and then we kind of dynamically list and brainstorm about that. And if you think about how many things come into being, uh, the idea of having a national flag, how you define a homeland and create something unified, a motherland, fatherland, what is the notion of sovereignty? How do you visualize the leadership of the country? Is it a monarchy? Is it an imperial household? Is it both? Does it have a parliamentary system? How is government visualized? And then all of the myths and legends and historical foundations that create the background to that nation, how it, it, com- how it coalesces. And in that process, of course, we, we engage these really important concepts like the invention of tradition, the imagined communities, all different kinds of ideas about the ways in which national identity is constructed in a very dynamic and ongoing way. And and if, if you're someone like me and you're teaching students who are trying to engage the visual, it, it, it really gives them an, an active, students an active sense of how, uh, for instance, clothing, cost, I mean, I'm very interested in, in costuming, the sartorial, the vestimentary, and you can't have a kimono unless you have Western style clothing because kimono itself as a national dress is defined by the binary of East and West, of Japanese and non-Japanese. And you find that over and over again, that self-definition in relation to not Japanese. Even language, national language is defined. And that goes into the art sphere in terms of the creating of Nihonga, of Neo-Japanese style painting, which is a kind of telescoping of, of many different kinds of artistic traditions that pre-existed and a renaming of it, a reclassification of it in relation to Western style painting. So we do a lot on, on those kinds of taxonomies of, of art. Uh, we look at the built environment. My students always read uh, Bill Coldrake's important book on Meiji architecture. Uh, because I, what I really love about that book is he's not only talking about large symbolic systems in architecture, he's talking about materials. How was masonry used as opposed to brick, as opposed to clapboard, as different hierarchies of national building? If you're going to build the Ministry of Justice, it's going to be in brick. If you're going to build banks, they're going to be in masonry. That they have different resonances as, as actual building materials. Of course, it maps onto cost and expense. I mean, we go all the way up, of course, to the wartime period, but one of the sections that I absolutely love teaching is on Minge, the folk craft movement, which is in many ways, again, a kind of consummate invention of tradition. And since I started teaching this class, there have been at least three books, uh, really interesting books written on Minge and the ideology of what it means to define folk crafts, because we're not just talking about insider, outsider, Japan, non-Japan, but then we're talking about urban and rural. We're talking about the present and modernity and a perceived idealized past, a kind of Arcadian village life and what that means about artisanal and craft traditions. And and Minge is a great example of that, whether it's ceramics or all different other kinds of uh, decorative arts and textiles, printmaking, everything about that is, is, is absolutely fascinating. And, and students really love that. And what's so great about that is that you can teach that in a global context, because I, one of the things I'm always trying to do is put Japan in relation to the rest of the world. I, I'm not a Japan is unique and essentially different than everywhere else. I'm always trying to think about 
how Japan is actually similar and paralleling other places, but doing it perhaps in different ways. And since the folk craft movement is really a global dynamic, if you think about John Ruskin and William Morris, Henry van de Velde in Belgium, every modern, especially late modernizing countries are thinking about what does handicraft mean in relation to machine production? Because as you start getting industrialization, objects are more produced industrially, they're produced by machine. And of course, that creates a special zone for the handcrafted. And Japan becomes an inspiration for the rest of the world in terms of its own identity as a place of great artisanal traditions and handicrafts. Uh, one thing I jumped over, but is a really critical part of this class that I teach is the world of world's fairs and global exhibitions, world exhibitions. And uh, I have a whole section on that. They're known as Hakurankai in Japanese. And also there's a domestic version of it, the the industrial domestic expositions that are done within the country. And they're a really interesting mode of self-representation, one global and one world-facing and international-facing, the other more internally-facing. But this idea of exhibitionary space and how you demonstrate progress but also highlight local culture ongoing traditions. And they're just a, a, a wonderful kind of world to think about, think about that. And, and of course, they extend to the colonies as well. And so I do a lot on, on colonial exhibitions. They're a kind of a dominant exhibitionary sphere all over the world. And one that Japan in particular uses very effectively in the international theater. If you think about the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, or you think of St. Louis Exposition, how they fought the Russo-Japanese War on the, actually on the ex- exposition fairgrounds. Uh, there's so much that takes place there that culture is a, a really powerful mode of communicating the geopolitics of the time period. And it's at those expositions where these things like Minge cultural crafts and all these other images of Japan are really propagated and sold to the rest of the world. And this topic of corporate advertising design is something that you're also working on as well. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, it, it absolutely is. I guess this kind of goes back to the, the madness and uh, slightly uh, zigzagging trajectory. But but actually, my interest in corporate advertising came directly out of my study of the pre-war avant-garde because one of the things that they were advocating for was breaking down the boundaries between fine art and daily life and ways in which art could impact or could shape uh, the world in which the modern world in which people were living. Again, that's in response to the segmenting off of art into academies and creating this idea of an edifying art, which goes back to the the whole salon tradition of, of, of Europe. So Japan had a a very uh, engaged, immersed kind of artisanal tradition. And then you get this whole superimposition of a, of a notion of high art. And then the avant-garde come back and they say, no, we want an art of daily life. And when they're doing that, they're getting very involved in design because a lot of the uh, new companies that are coming to create new commodities are transforming urban life and transforming the world around them. And even though it might seem like a contradiction because a lot of them had leftist leanings, they really saw this world as very liberating and, and possibly areas where they could have important 
social impact. So they, they really went into those areas with gusto. And I was just amazed to find out how many artists, some model artists, but artists of that generation were working hand in hand with companies like Shiseido or Kaoso, Morinaga Confectionery, Meiji Chocolate. And all of them are well over 100 year companies now. These are companies that were really just starting to establish themselves in the teens and 20s and come into their own in the 30s. And that's exactly when modern art and modernism and the modern design movement of commercial design was was taking hold. Uh, graphic design, the term graphic design wasn't even coined until 1922, which is interesting. And people think, obviously, people were doing advertising before that. But this idea of the modern graphic designer is a, is a 1920s phenomenon. So it's absolutely parallel with what Mavo and the avant-garde is, is coming into being. And then if you think about the Russian avant-garde that were so interested in agitprop and art as a means of visual communication, uh, it, it's really natural to think about how design comes out of modernism and the avant-garde during that time period. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to see a lot of the corporate archives. As we know, Japan is a an archiving country, <laughs> Can, despite the fact that they've had so many incredible catastrophic disasters, they, they managed to, companies managed to keep incredible inventories and archives of their activities, and they are interested in studying themselves, and they keep great records. So I've been able to go back and, and look at how these companies define their own brands visually, how those emerged, and even how involved company presidents were in designing those brands and, and writing catch copy for advertising and working with artists. So it's a, it's a really exciting time period because it's, it's just becoming professionalized, but it's not outsourced to big advertising companies the way you would think of it now, of Dentsu and Hakuhodo and those kinds of companies that do it now. At that time, it was done in-house by designers or by freelancers who were hired, who were in the same company as all of these artists who were protesting out in Ueno Park and were in this kind of heady environment of the avant-garde. So it's, it's very fluid. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.